Welcome to The Storytellers, the radio show and podcast that features those who choose to leave their mark on the world through the art of story. I'm your host, Grace Salmon. I look forward to our time together today. Now, let's meet our storyteller. Lainey Cameron is a digital nomad and author of women's fiction, a recovering tech industry executive. Her award-winning novel, The Exit Strategy, was inspired by a decade of being the only woman in the corporate boardroom. It's been called a rallying call for women to believe in themselves and join together. The Exit Strategy tells the story of a Silicon Valley investor who first meets her husband's mistress across the negotiating table. She's the founder and host of the Best of Women's Fiction interview series and podcast, a proud member and volunteer for the Women's Fiction Writers Association, and believes community makes the author's life worthwhile. She is on a mission to obliterate the term aspiring writer. Originally from Scotland, Lainey has a soft spot for kilts and good malt whiskey. And when she's not writing or reading, you'll find her hunting down new malts, checking on rooftop bars, and when possible, hanging out with anything equine. Lainey, thanks for being with me today. Oh, thanks so much for inviting me, Grace. I'm so happy to be here. (laughs) Let's start off with your moniker of being a digital nomad. You are the first and only digital nomad I know. Why don't we talk about that for a minute and how that came to be? So it all started five, six years ago when I was finishing the first draft of my first novel that eventually came out last year in 2020. And my husband and I were living in San Francisco and we realized that there really was no reason to pay expensive San Francisco rents when both of us had jobs, me now as an author and him as a tech executive um, programming, all kinds of fun stuff, that we really had no need to be in San Francisco paying, you know, $4,000 a month for rent. And I joke, no, not, that is true, not for a big place, for a small place. And so we kind of said, well, why don't we go live in places that we would enjoy living around the world? And there are a lot of people who do this. Pre-COVID, it was a lot simpler. And so long as you have a good internet connection, you work out the visa situation, you can live almost anywhere and do your job these days as COVID has taught us, right? I think before COVID, a lot of people thought many jobs could not possibly be done remotely. And we've learned that not all, but maybe 80, 90% of jobs can be done remotely. And so for the last five years, we've been picking places six months at a time to live and work. And we rent an apartment. We live like locals and we make sure we get out and meet people and enjoy the place. But we work full time. We just work from different locations. How do you pick your places and does that influence your writing? We have a rule, I've shared this a couple of times, that um, sometimes surprises people that we don't work on or discuss or get truly focused on where we're going next until we're within a month of leaving. And the reason we do that is if you think about a six-month time period and how long the average person takes to plan their vacations, you could spend your whole six months planning where you're going to be next instead of being present and enjoying where you are. And so we wait until we're about a month before we're leaving, before we make plans for the next location. And we use a whole bunch of different resources. There's a great website called nomadlist.com. And you can see like the average rental price, the price of a cappuccino, the price of a co-working space. Um, So you can basically see 
what kind of locations compare to each other, both price, friendliness to expats and foreigners, because we don't necessarily want to go somewhere that we won't be safe or that we won't be welcome. And that's especially true as a woman if you're traveling alone. Some locations are better than others. Some locations you're going to feel welcome. Some locations you're maybe going to feel unsafe traveling and walking down the street alone. And so those kind of things are rated on nomadlist.com and they really matter to us. But the other thing is we always are asking people when we meet other nomads, which happens very frequently, or just friends, we ask like, where have you been in the world that you really appreciated that we might not have been yet? And that influences us. In fact, we're about to make a change right now. We were supposed to go to New Orleans for a month in October. And obviously this is not the ideal time to visit New Orleans. The hurricane just passed through. It's not an easy time to be hosting people if you're an Airbnb host. And so we literally put a, I actually put something out on Instagram and said, okay, October, we're going somewhere. Where should we go? And I got about 10, 15 different suggestions and we considered them. And the end answer is we're going to be in Quebec City for a month, enjoying French croissants and pastries. So if anyone's nearby, come say hi. (laughs) That's wonderful. And does this influence your writing? Yes, I think it influences the creative side, not necessarily the editing side. It's interesting. You know, the editing side is all about picking your words and really making it making it emotionally gripping and page turning. And that is more like um, intense kind of focus on the screen kind of work. But when I'm writing the first draft, it's very helpful to get out of my regular space. In fact, even if I'm in Mexico, which is kind of our part-time home now, especially during COVID, I'll often go out to a coffee shop outside or somewhere to write my first draft because I want to free my mind from the constraints of like the box that is the office. During a first draft, you're trying really hard to be as creative and as storytelling as possible and not to fall into old patterns of how to think about things. And so I find that being in different spaces, maybe feeling a bit uncomfortable with the culture actually helps with that creativity. You are probably one of the most free-spirited people I know as demonstrated certainly by your nomadic lifestyle. But you lived those years in that corporate boardroom. So how did you make that leap from that life to storytelling? It's an interesting question. I was always a bit of a rebel in the corporate world. Um, In fact, I'll tell you a story. When I was 27, I became the youngest executive at one of the big five blue chip American tech corporations. I'll let you guess. It's one of the five. Okay. And at the time, the reason they wanted to put me into an executive role is because I was a bit of a troublemaker. I was the person saying, well, I hear that we always did it that way, but why does that mean we have to do it that way in the future? And like, but customers don't like that thing. So why do we keep doing it again and again? Why don't we just ditch that product and try something different? And in really big multi-billion dollar corporations, that's actually a very unusual thing because what creates you money is very hard to then change and leave behind. And so it was kind of interesting that I came into this company from a startup. I was actually part of a startup that got acquired into a huge mammoth company. And so my perspective was always, I'm only here for a while and I'm not constrained by all these things that people who've been here forever feel like can never change. And so I think I've always been a little bit of a troublemaker or a change maker, depending on how you define it. And writing was a little bit the same. It was like a startup. Let's try this and see if I can be any good at this. Let's see if I can tell a story. I had never written long form content except for really geeky tech white papers about cloud computing. Like I mostly wrote like advertising copy and very short form stuff. So the concept of writing like a hundred thousand word novel 
I had no idea whether I could even get to the end of this thing, never mind whether it would be any good. And so I think that startup mentality that says the only way you're going to know whether it works is to actually try it is helpful because it's such a long, a long journey. And when you start out as a storyteller, when you start out as a writer or a novelist or whatever that genre is, you're going to be pretty bad at it. Like you, nobody starts something and is perfect at it from day one. And if they are, you know, I admire you. That's not most of us. And so I think that like willingness to not have it be perfect at the beginning is really important to a writer and being able to learn and accept that like this is just draft one and draft 12 will be good even if draft one isn't. Well, and become a storyteller you did. Your book, The Exit Strategy, is so remarkable in so many ways. It's remarkable for the way it's written, for the theme of women empowering each other. It's remarkable for the number of awards it's received. And it's remarkable in some ways. I loved it from the very beginning. I loved your dedication to your mom. So I want to talk about all of those things. Where would you like to start? Let's start with the number of awards. So it it really amazes me because it's won 11 book awards. Um, the most recent remarkable. was the American, the winner in the American Fiction Awards for 2021. And it's really surprised me because this book, I took it out to like 130 agents and was told that there is no market for a book like this, that nobody wants to read about women uplifting other women in Silicon Valley in the workplace, that women's fiction is never set in the workplace in that way, unless it's like a thriller where they're going to kill each other. And so after getting told so many different ways, like there is no market, this story should not exist, it should not be in the world, to bring it out and then have fabulous reader reaction and get 11 awards in a row it's kind of like an alternate reality where it's like, how are these two things existing in the same plane of existence being told no, 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 no. And then having readers love it. And so I always tell people like there are gatekeepers in the publishing industry and they're always going to make decisions based on past history. So when they look at a book and it's different, they're going to say, is there a similar book that was successful? And if there isn't, then they're going to say no. And it's nothing to do with the quality of the work or the market for the work. It's just past history. And so I, I always try to encourage people, don't let some gatekeeper tell you whether your story is worth having in the world, because that story needs to be in the world if you believe it does. And those gatekeepers don't always know what they're talking about. And clearly in your case, they didn't. In terms of your novel, let's talk a little bit about what we alluded to in the introduction. You have these two high-powered women, and they meet, and they start talking one about their husband and the other one about their soon-to-be husband, their fiancé, and they wind up being the same man. Yeah. Why, why did you create that amazing magic and not have it be where they did want to kill each other in the workplace? They become friends and advocates. Yeah, I got told a lot of times as I was taking this book out, well, two women in this scenario could never become friends. It's not possible. And I know it's possible. I've seen it in the world. And what I wanted to do was set up a scenario where you have two women that the reader says there is no way they're going to get through this and come out the other side, you know, even wanting to be in the same room, never mind liking each other. And I wanted to challenge myself and the reader to say, what would it take to have enough empathy to see across the table and see that other person's situation and realize that you have more in common than you have different? And so the beginning of the book is a lot of fireworks because it opens with the main character, Rin, who's a venture capitalist, and she's invested in a tech startup. That's what a venture capitalist does. They invest in other companies for a living. 
And this is the deal that will make or break her career. And so when she realizes about three minutes before walking into the meeting that the woman she bet everything on is her husband's mistress, you absolutely do not expect these two women to be able to get past that. And the other woman has no idea she's the mistress. So she walks into the meeting and is blindsided. And so that scene is is a very visceral, very um, page turning, I've been told, scene. And the whole book is very much a page turner because we as women have been taught so many times that we couldn't get past this situation. If you think of every movie you've ever seen that has a wife and a mistress, those movies go one of two ways. 80% of the time, the wife and the mistress become enemies and you have kind of a killing the bunny in the pot on the stove scenario, right? <laughs> Um, so that's like 80% of the time in the movies. And then the other 20% of the time, they gang up to get revenge on the guy. And the movie or the book becomes all about the man. And I was determined to write a book that wasn't about the man. The man just has a role in the plot in this book, but the book is about the two women. And I didn't want to make it a revenge novel where it circles all around him, because I think most women are better than that. And I wanted to tell that story that I don't see in the media all the time. And it drives me crazy when I see women, especially in corporate, women portrayed as always being catty and at each other and not uplifting or helping each other, because that's not been my experience of life. Even in, even in the corporate arena, that was not my experience of life. My experience was that women help each other out. You did such a great job of that. And I'm wondering if that's just in your DNA. As I follow you on social media, you are one of the most supportive authors to other authors, for which I personally thank you. And you do it in such subtle ways. You just recently won an award and you posted it as we should, as we need to as authors. And then you quickly said, but also look at everybody else who was in this category. And that is just such a beautifully organic thing that you do. Is it just part of your DNA or do you have to remind yourself to do it? No, I think it's part of my DNA. There's a couple of things going on there. You know, we as women are taught not to boast ourselves about ourselves, right? So like, I inherently feel awkward talking about myself. Like it's awkward saying like, hey, here's my book, like it. And yes, I'll accept that that's like cultural conditioning and we shouldn't feel that way, right? We should feel very comfortable saying, I won this award and I'm super proud of it. But it just makes it a little easier on me when I take the opportunity to be grateful and to also uplift others. It just feels easier on me than if I were just talking about myself. And then the second thing is that there is so much room, especially in the author world, but in the world in general, there is so much room for all of us, right? I like to say that I'm going to write, you know, if I'm really good, a book every two years. I'll be glad if I can pull that off. I see people writing several books a year and I just go, how do you do that? But for me, maybe it's every two years, okay? So the people who follow me, who are interested in what I write, are reading something else for 23 months out of 24. Let's say they only read a book a month and most people read more than that. So why wouldn't I recommend other books and other authors that I think they would enjoy? I'm bringing some value to those same readers that one day will buy my next book. So it's good for me. It gives me something to talk about. And so for me, there's there's not a zero-sum game where authors are in competition. And if you buy book one, you don't buy book two. It's quite the opposite. Like readers love, in my experience, to hear from authors about books we recommend that we think they'll enjoy. And so to me, it's a it's a gain all round. Why wouldn't you do that? And that's why I started the podcast. That's why I started the Best of Women's Fiction podcast, which I'd love to talk about a little bit if we have time, because I'd encourage people to listen to it, because it is all about uplifting other authors who I admire and also trying to bring in a diversity of different types of authors and ask them about their books. I find that 
from my experience, being told, oh, no, women's fiction can't be in the workplace and it can't be about two women being friends. That frustrated me enough that I want to be creating a platform to show readers all these great books that are perhaps a little different than the traditional, a woman goes and opens a bed and breakfast and refinds herself after divorce. There's nothing wrong with that book, but there are many of them out there. And I want to put the books that maybe have characters set in India or characters who are Taiwanese American or characters who are dealing with the with a with a miscarriage is an, an interview that I'm about to do. Like, I feel like there's so many themes that we, we as women deal with and they're not all represented or uplifted in women's fiction in the way they could be. Take your own book, Grace. Your own book is fabulous. Right. And that doesn't necessarily fit in the neat little box of this is what traditional women's fiction looks like. It's got so many wonderful themes to it. Again, women uplifting each other, women in later age and how you continue to live an active, vibrant life. Like all of these things need to be in the world. And so what I'm trying to do with this podcast is give readers a chance to learn about new books that they might not have seen that might not be the big, 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 you know, publicist, someone put $50,000 behind its promotion kind of book. Well, you did a great job, and I'm glad we are talking about the podcast, The Best of Women's Fiction. I do hope that people subscribe, listen to it, because you do focus on those books that are not the traditional book, if you will. And I was quite honest uh, and transparent that I was honored to be on it. I believe, and I think I may have heard you say this in another venue, that you believe women's fiction changes lives. I think that's true. I, I think... We get to live through fiction, the experience of something that maybe we haven't lived in real life and maybe we'd never want to live in real life. So um, it can have a couple of different effects. So I, I think of um, Kaylin Fogarty's book. It's on my mind because I just recently read it, read it called All That We Carry. And it's about a woman dealing with having had a miscarriage and moving on from there. And, you know, there's two types of women who are going to be drawn to that book, women who have had a miscarriage. And it's a way of processing this, right, to actually read this experience, but live it kind of a step apart because it's through a fictional character. And so you're able to process your own experience through that fictional character. And that can change your life that way. But there's also like men are going to read this book when their wife have dealt with has dealt with a miscarriage and it's going to give them an understanding and an insight into what that feels like inside that woman's head that their own wife could probably never explain out loud to them because that's so traumatic and so painful for them to go through and so whether it's another woman reading that book or a husband reading that book it does change lives and i think it will change lives when people read it and are therefore able to relate more either to their own trauma or to someone else's experience because they read that book it's a perfect example I think so as well. And we are constantly reinventing ourselves. You reinvented yourselves. My book talks about reinventing ourselves. I think your book empowers people to do that as well. And your work does. Thank you. Thank you. I I hope so. And I think we underestimate how much we can reinvent ourselves. You know, five years ago, I was in tech. I was super stressed. I was not doing well health-wise. And I was not traveling the world except in big corporate hotels where you got to see the inside of the Hilton Garden Inn in five different cities. And let me tell you, they all look the same, whether they you're in Beijing or You should Thailand travel 200 or... days a year. They look exactly the same. You don't know where you are. <laughs> exactly. Right, so, right. like, we do get to reinvent ourselves many times in this life. And it's kind of amazing that we do. You also talk very candidly about 
self-care, taking care of yourself. You took, I thought, a very bold move back in August where you took yourself off social media in the middle of winning all of these awards. And you also taught me a new term, and not only digital nomad, but you taught me about being a spoonie. I Tell people about that. Yeah. Um, so those who are spoonies will totally know what this term means, and I'll, I'll explain it um, a little bit more in a second. But I haven't talked about it a lot in the past because I do have a health condition. I have ulcerative colitis, which is in the condition of Crohn's, um, same family as Crohn's disease, kind of about where it shows up in your body. Um, and I don't talk about it front and center because I don't want to be thought that way as primarily someone with a health condition. And so when I started out as an author, I started out talking about what I do in the world, what I how I'm a digital nomad, et cetera. And then back in July, it was Disability Awareness Month, and I was really struggling with my health. Um, I had a really huge flare up. I was in pain all the time, and I was experiencing being a spoonie truly deeply for the first time. And a spoonie, the analogy is it was um, a blog post written by a lady called Christine Misserandino. And the concept is that we only have so many spoons in one day. And let's say that the start of the day, you have six spoons. Spoons are just um, units of energy. And if you use three spoons, getting out of bed, getting on social media, checking on your TikTok, creating a social media video, you can run out of spoons by 10 a.m. in the morning. And then all you want to do is go back to bed. You're exhausted. You only have so much energy. And when you're in pain, you really are lacking in energy because you're putting so much of your energy into the pain. And I think I hadn't truly appreciated that enough. And so I decided it was time for me to share it. And I shared it in the context of saying, like, here are five things about me. I'm a digital nomad. I'm an award-winning author. I'm a bestseller. Um, I'm, 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 I can't remember what number four was, but I'm like five different things. And one of them is a Spoonie. And I got a lot of positive feedback from other Spoonies by doing it that way because none of us want to be thought of primarily as a sick person. Like that is not like an identity that any of us necessarily want to embrace, including people who are dealing with pain every single day of their lives. And so I was really relating to this concept of being a Spoonie, having limited energy. And I wanted to share it in context of you can be dealing with that, but also be many other things at once. And yes, it's a part of my identity, but it's one part of many things that make up my identity. And I wanted to share it in that context. And so it's kind of interesting that I hadn't shared it much until then. It wasn't a secret. It just wasn't something I led with. And so, yeah, I got a lot of positive feedback from people saying, thank you for sharing that. Like, I didn't realize that behind the scenes, people think of me as someone with limitless energy because I do a lot of things. But there are times like in July where I was struggling to get out of bed. Like I wasn't getting out of bed till 12, one in the afternoon. And so, yeah, social media is one of those things that it can sap your energy and you have to be thoughtful about whether that's where you want to put your energy at any moment in time. And I'm so grateful. It was actually another author who I saw. Um, She posted, I'm taking a social media sabbatical for a month. And I saw her post and thought, that's exactly what I need to do. I just need to give myself time to heal. And here I am feeling much better. Well, we're so glad you're feeling much better. And you do bring what appears to be boundless energy for this work, for just the joy you bring to this entire community. And I was very grateful that you also had that other side that you shared with us. One of the things I like to wind up with my guests are something quirky, which you're more than welcome to share anything quirky, but I want to know about the donkeys. Ah, the donkeys. Okay. There's a there's a wonderful photo. I, need, I think you'll find it if you go to my Instagram. It's actually in photos that I'm tagged in of me a couple of years ago in 2019 when my husband and I, after 10 years together, uh, got married. And we did it here in San Miguel de Allende in Mexico. And there's a tradition here of going on a little parade with a donkey that carries the tequila. 
And there's a wonderful photo of me actually basically kissing the donkey in the middle of the parade. I've got my arms around his neck and we're full on like embracing. And um, it's funny, it's become like a tourist commercial for San Miguel because I just look so happy kissing this donkey. But I love donkeys. I, I grew up with horses. I love horses. The bigger, the better. Big horses, big dogs. But I love, like you said, anything equine, horses, donkeys. And I'll tell you a little story that all the way through the pandemic, I felt so sorry for this donkey because it was the same one that was in my wedding. It's called picos, which means cheeks, like 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 you're grinning in Spanish. And all the way through the pandemic, this poor donkey, which is a wedding donkey, was unemployed for a year. And so you would hear him a couple of blocks from my house all day going, I'm so bored. And so I'm glad that they're starting to do weddings again. And poor Picos has at least got back to work and is getting back to his life's mission, which is being a happy wedding donkey. And we can all drink tequila. Lainey, where can people find you on social media? I'm going to give you a couple of different links. The first one is my personal website as an author, which is laineycameron.com, L-A-I-N-E-Y, Cameron.com. And then the second one is if you'd like to check out the podcast, you can find all the episodes, both video and podcast audio on bestofwomensfiction.com. And I'd love for you to give it a listen. Lainey, thanks for being such a great storyteller and a role model and a fun partner in this work. Thank you. I so appreciate being invited here. And I love what you're doing here with this series. Thanks, Lainey. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. That concludes this episode of The Storytellers. I'm so glad you could be part of the story today. I hope you share the stories, tell your own, and come back for another episode. Because when our stories are told, everything changes. I'm Grace Salmon. 